0: Hello friends, welcome to episode 87 of the Alabama Liberal Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the American voter versus the American worker. Now, that title is going to generate some controversy right off the bat, I can tell, because some people are going to be like, well, I vote and I work Alabama liberal. How dare you say that people who vote don't work or people who work don't vote? Now, that's just not the way that it is. I understand that. Let me go ahead and clarify that title. I'm not saying that people can't vote and work at the same time or that they shouldn't. They should. I'm not saying that they shouldn't or that they don't. But what I think I'm kind of getting at is the idea that, number one, the demographics are slightly different. The average American voter is slightly different than the average American. The average American voter is a little bit whiter, a little bit wealthier, a little bit more rural, and a little bit more retired, generally speaking, than the average American is. The average American is younger, poorer, works, and the average American worker is a little bit different than the average American voter because how do they schedule? Voting days. They're on Tuesdays. People who work long hours, they never get to vote. My dad didn't vote for years and years, not necessarily because he didn't want to, but it was just impossible to get off work. I mean, it was just, by the time he did, it was closed, the polls were closed. Before he could go in, the polls would be too long, there'd be lines or what have you. There's just not a lot of convenience for people who work certain jobs to be able to go in and vote. That's why a lot of people love mail-in balloting. And that's why Republicans desperately do not want mail-in balloting because then a lot of people who work for a living, the working class, so-called, they can actually vote. And so it's funny to me, that Republicans always say, oh, we're the party of the white working class as they kind of stop them from voting in a lot of ways because a lot of the stuff that they want to do, they know that it will disproportionately disenfranchise minorities. It will hurt minorities more than anybody, but it will also hurt the white working class. Their so-called constituents, the constituency that they so-called care so much about that, of course, they really don't. And we're going to expose that in a minute. But so I think that when you talk about the American voter, why you want to talk about that? Right now, people might ask, like, it's the summertime. Shouldn't we be kicking back? Shouldn't we be talking about enjoyable things? And i try to make it as fun as I possibly can. There's no way to make the systematic stripping of voting rights fun, but I'm going to try to make it as fun as I possibly can. But right now, I think about it. We're right around the 4th of July. In the summertime, you get all these great holidays, Memorial Day is a very patriotic holiday. When I did this last podcast, The End of Meat, I forgot to mention the two biggest grilling holidays of the year, Memorial Day and Fourth of July, and it kind of fell in between those. And then if you had a third one, it might very well be Father's Day. And then a fourth one might very well be Labor Day. All those fall in the summertime period, so people are grilling meat. Some people say, I don't ever eat red meat except for the summer. About those three or four holidays I just mentioned, those are the only times I ever eat red meat per year and maybe Thanksgiving, right? So that's kind of a special occasion. But I think also too, when you talk about voting, you don't think about that as a summer activity because most elections are in the fall, but there's primary season. That's usually in June. And I think the 4th of July is a very patriotic holiday. Probably the most patriotic holiday there is. So is Memorial Day and to an extent, so is Labor Day. So right now we're kind of that sweet spot of 4th of July and Labor Day. So one holiday that's celebrates the American voter. Patriotism, America, democracy, things like that, independence, and Labor Day. No, we like to think of these systems as complementary. Democracy and capitalism, and they're kind of mixed in together. And I think they're as complementary as they can be. There's no real economic system that is totally democratic. Not communism, certainly. So people might hear me say that and think, oh, you're giving a closed endorsement to communism. I'm actually not. And a big part of the reason we have such huge divisions in this country, Russia and China, spam the fuck out of our social media all day, every day just spamming it with trash and garbage. Just this race-baiting, gender baiting. Let's play each group of Americans off each other. Let's divide the country as much as we can. Recently on HBO Max, I watch a lot of older movies. I don't know, maybe you guys like older movies as well, but I love watching a lot of movies, period. I watch, I mean, literally, probably hundreds of movies every single year. i probably watched well over 10,000 movies in my lifetime. But on HBO Max, they have a lot of these old Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn type old movies. Most of them are pretty irrelevant and they haven't, truly age that well today, if you want to know the truth about it, I don't just mean from like a woke perspective. I mean, they're just not very interesting. You know, you watch them and there's a lot of jokes that aren't funny. And I don't mean funny because they're offensive. I mean, it's just kind of boring, truthfully, to be honest with you. But there's one movie they made together that's not a comedy and it's kind of a drama called Keeper of the Flame, the most interesting and sort of relevant movie that they made together. I've seen Catherine Hepburn in other great movies that have aged better, but not necessarily one with him in it. Keeper of the Flame, towards the very end, the American Patriot, or so they think. They think this man is a great man. And they look up to him and think he's a great man. Spencer Tracy is a reporter investigating his death. Catherine Hepburn plays his widow. And the more he investigates this man, he finds out like, oh, actually, he wasn't this big people's champion and this advocate for democracy. He was a closet fascist. And the big climax of the movie is they find out that this man was funding basically a Koch brothers type network of people wealthy individual donors were giving him cash and he wanted to basically play the american people off each other the white working class against black people women and gay people and all the different groups inside the united states play them off each other get them at each other's throats use them for his own advantage divide the country and that way the fastest people the top people they could basically take over and be the american hitler i think people have been trying to do this for a long time i think they've done it to a certain extent Sporadically, It comes in ebbs and waves. Everything kind of moves in a cycle in the United States. We move a little bit more towards fascism under Nixon. Then we pull back and move a little bit more towards democracy. We move a little bit more towards fascism under Bush. Then we pull back and move more towards democracy. We move a little bit more towards fascism under Trump. Obviously, the very person that we're going to be talking about quite a bit, and it moves and flows and cycles. But I tell you what, I'm very proud of myself because in episode 86, I did not mention Donald Trump's name not one time. I think that's the first episode of the entire podcast where his name was not brought up one time. And I was so pleased with that. One of these days I'm going to do an episode where we don't mention Trump or coronavirus at all. I'm determined to outlast both Trump and coronavirus. I've outlasted Trump. Now we got to get coronavirus under control because I want this podcast to say, hey, look, we can survive Trump and coronavirus. The two biggest public health threats of the last decade Donald Trump and his fucking mouth and coronavirus. And I want to be able to say that I outlasted both of those. But of course, there's no way to not talk about him in this episode. He is relevant, unfortunately, to what we're going to be talking about, because he is just the latest incarnation of a very old Republican ideal that voting is perhaps not a right. It's a privilege. It's a right. We have the right to vote in this country. We are supposed to be the democracy of the world. We are supposed to be the chief democracy. People call us the leader of the free world. And I do believe that applies. And I'm not going to be as pessimistic as a lot of liberals are and say, oh, America's a bunch of bullshit. We talk a good game, but we don't deliver. The thing about America is it's divided on everything. It's not really one country. It's 50 separate countries that all kind of make their own agenda. They all kind of do their own thing. I don't think there is another nation on the planet where states' rights play such an enormous role in things. It's impossible to overestimate how big a role that states' rights play in things. It's tough to explain this to people from Canada. I've been on this thing about I think Canada and the United States need to merge. I think it's ridiculous that we're two separate countries. We really shouldn't be. The only reason that Canada, quote unquote, exists is because England didn't want to give up their presence in North America. Canada was a military base for colonial England to launch attacks on the United States. After the Revolutionary War, England didn't want to be totally shut out of North America, so they kept the Canada part to be basically a shadow state for themselves. And that's where they were able to launch things like the War of 1812's attacks and other things like that. So really, there hasn't been a compelling reason for a Canada nation to exist for quite some time. And they've only recently become truly independent. Like they were quasi-independent for a long time, but I mean, they haven't been granted real and true full independence. It's been like the 1980s. So that's kind of crazy when you think about how recent that's been. They still do a lot of things like, oh, we pay the queen a dollar for forestry, rights and all this crazy shit. They have all these crazy traditions that are still way too overly beholden to England, a country that every other nation on the planet realized was not that important. India got into full independence. Nigeria got full independence. Israel got full independence. The United States, obviously. I mean, every other country in the world is like, fuck England, who are they? You know, who have they ever been really to boss us around? Canada's still in that. They're probably the last holdouts to still think England is really that big a deal and important. I'm always arguing that the United States and Canada, there's no compelling reasons that we're too separate. Nations, 90% of Canadians live within 100 miles of the American border. They do overwhelming majority of business. More tourists come from the United States to Canada than all of the other nations combined. They do more trade with the United States than all of the nations combined. All of their biggest companies are heavily dependent on trade and business and commerce with the United States. A lot of their best workers come from the United States and vice versa. Canadians come work. Born in Toronto, they come live in New York. People in New York, they go to Toronto for satellite offices. We're connected in a thousand different ways. If the United States really and truly said tomorrow... We are not going to do any trade or any business or any tourism with Canada, their economy would collapse. I know sometimes Trumpers, they overestimate America's influence, like, oh, we're going to make these China trade tariffs and they're going to come squealing tomorrow and come kicking it. Sometimes we overestimate our influence in the world. Canada is one place where we underestimate it. Bold, bold statement. And so there is no Canada if the United States cuts off all ties with them in terms of their economy. Their economy collapses tomorrow. But when you try to explain to Canadians, they always say things like we love our health care, we love our gun control. That's how you know that this plan should have been enacted a long time ago. If the two biggest things you can come up with is health care and gun control, There's no reason for your country to exist. Those are two things that I understand that they're important. But if that's all you can give me, if that's it, that's nothing. What's the reason for your country's independence? We have a slightly different uh, gun control laws because they have guns. You can fucking buy and sell guns in Canada. So they have a little bit tighter controls, but you can still buy and sell guns. Roughly the same percentage of their population owns a gun as the United States, in the United States, most people do not own a gun. It's just that the gun nuts own a hundred guns. And that's why it looks like there's so much more Americans that own guns than there really is. But in Canada, they have roughly the same percentage of rural people that own guns as the United States does. Their healthcare system is very different. I'd like to change our system to their system. I like their system better. I think most Americans would as well. But again, this is where states' rights comes into play. Because every state technically has the right to set their own gun control laws. The gun control laws are not the same in California as they are in Alabama. There's a lot of stuff that's not the same. The abortion laws are not exactly the same. The gun laws, the health care laws, civil rights laws can sometimes vary from state to state as we've seen with recently they had Loving Day on June the 12th. That's where all the interracial couples were legally allowed to get married in the Southeast, which they didn't have, and the rest of the country did. Family court laws, civil statutes. Some states are right-to-work states, which absolutely sucks. Alabama's a right-to-work state. California is not. As a worker, I'd rather work in California, okay? As a member of the white working class, I'd much rather be in California doing a job. Fun historical fact, as a quick side note, who knows where right-to-work came from? It was a man named Vance Muse, who was a white supremacist. And his entire argument for why right to work was correct was because he didn't like that unions were integrated. He said, how long is it before white men are forced to call black men their brothers because of unions or whatever? So his entire crux of his argument about why unions are bad is basically segregation. He didn't want black and white men working together and and especially black men and white women working together. And that was a huge crux of his argument. So that's where the right to work comes from as a guy who was almost certainly a Klansman and an avowed racist out loud. And of course, a lot of this voting rights stuff, that's a big crux of it is race. Who do Republicans most not want to vote? Black people. If they could stop black people from voting, I think in their minds, they believe they'd win every election. And maybe there's a modicum of truth to that, But I honestly feel like that's the primary group they're trying to stop because they've looked at the numbers. And I think that the uh, Latino or Latin population, I don't think, is really delivered for Democrats the way they thought they would. I think for about 50 years, they've been on this kick of like, oh, well, don't worry about it because the future is ours. The future is ours. Why is the future ours? Because the Latin population is going to be number one. And when they're number one, Democrats will win every election. And I've probably heard that the entirety of my life. I've heard that since the 1980s. Weird way, both sides overestimate that because Democrats want to believe that because that's a rosy view of the future where Republicans are kind of boxed out. They're no longer important, or at least they have to adapt. They have to adapt and come back to our page, which they kind of were in the 1950s. They were a little bit when FDR and LBJ, in that time period between those two great presidents, I mean, they sort of had to be a little bit more moderate. I mean, they couldn't be batshit crazy like they are now. They had to come to our side and negotiate on our terms, which they haven't done that for a while. Not for a very long time. So Democrats want to believe that because it's a rosy view of the future. And Republicans want to believe that because it scares the shit out of their base. Republicans primarily vote Republican because they're scared of being the minority in their own country. And a big part of the crux of the American voter is minority rule. But different parties define that differently. Republicans define it as like, okay, all these minorities, even though they're minorities, they control everything. Even though black people are only 13% of the population, almost every major U.S. city, they control everything. What do they mean by everything? Birmingham, Mobile, New Orleans, Atlanta... The majority of cities in the Southeast and some of them in the Midwest are very difficult for like to, you know, not have a black mayor, a black city council, black business community. They're majority black. A lot of the cities are in the Southeast and like places like Detroit, Chicago. That's how they define it as minority rule. They're like, even though they're only 13%, they have outsized influence in the Democratic Party. Democratic Party had Barack Obama be president, now Kamala Harris is vice president. Other people Joe Biden interviewed, Karen Bass. Lori Lightfoot. I mean, all these black female mayors in San Francisco and D.C. and Chicago and Atlanta, and that's primarily who is gravitating towards. I think Keisha Bottoms was right up there at the top towards Kamala Harris. Susan Rice, that was another one. So they look at it as almost like, what do we got to do to catch a break? And that's how they view a world that the Democrats run. Meanwhile, the reality is quite different from that. And that won't surprise anybody who listens to this podcast. Democrats define minority rule as Donald Trump was the first U.S. president to lose back-to-back popular votes, okay? It's been over 100 fucking years since a president lost back-to-back popular votes, and Donald Trump was it. George W. Bush lost the popular vote in the year 2000. He might have lost the Electoral College. But who shut that down? The Supreme Court shut down the recount in Florida. So this is two examples this century where minority rule has determined the presidency. They have not won the presidency. This century, other than 2004 in terms of popular vote, and that's only because George W. Bush was an incumbent. If he weren't an incumbent, there's no way. In my lifetime, that's the only time that they've won the popular vote for president. You have to look at that and think, they haven't had a real popular vote blowout since 1988, George H.W. Bush versus Dukakis. Yet they've controlled the White House for about half that time. They've controlled the Supreme Court for the entirety of that time. They've controlled the Supreme Court for 50 years. Okay, Democrats haven't controlled it since Nixon took office. So you have a Supreme Court where the majority of justices right now were either Bush or Trump appointed. Trump appoints three justices, even though he lost the popular vote by a substantial margin. And Bush obviously appointed a few justices. So you have a majority of the Supreme Court appointed by presidents that did not win the popular vote. Then you go to the Senate. And I mean, I know this is a statistic I probably said before, but I mean, it really bears repeating that in California, you have almost 15% of the entire population. I believe it's something like 13% of the entire country lives in California. And we get outvoted by the Dakotas. North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, and Idaho have less than 1% of the United States population. And in the Senate, they outvote California, New York, and Illinois, which has about 20% of the American population. 20% of the American people... In California, New York, and Illinois are being outvoted by less than 1% that lives in non-coastal western states with more cows than people. I know people say, well, that's how the founding fathers intended it. That's how they intended it. I have no fucking idea if that's true. What the Constitution, and I know it's the sacred document that we all have to bow down at the altar and worship on until it doesn't agree with what we want which is what Republicans do constantly. They love the constitution until it doesn't agree with what they want. And then they want to change whatever it says. Love the constitution. We got to respect it no matter what. Hey, Hillary, you know, sorry about that popular vote, but the constitution's clear. The electoral college is the winner. Okay, well, Joe Biden won the electoral college. No, he didn't. We want to recount this shit till we get the right number of votes. Okay, but he clearly won both the popular vote and the electoral college. No, we're going to do recount after recount. He's been in office over 100 days And they did more recounts in Arizona. I thought even if they did a recount in fucking Arizona, what difference does it make at this point? He's in office. And that bullshit with Biden, they don't believe that shit's true. And they're not even doing that for Trump. They're doing that because if they can make Joe Biden seem illegitimate, they don't have to do a fucking thing he wants for four years. It basically gives them an excuse to do absolutely nothing. A politically convenient excuse to say he's not legitimate. So we don't have to do anything. Infrastructure? Well, sure, our people would benefit from infrastructure, but we can't give that to an illegitimate president. Tommy Tupperville said he wished Biden had not done the third stimulus because he could have used the money for the stimulus to fund the infrastructure package. But he doesn't want to vote for the infrastructure package and he didn't vote for the third stimulus. So I thought, wrap your head around that. Senator from Alabama, Tommy Tupperville, did not vote for the third stimulus package And then you think, okay, well, he's saving his votes up for infrastructure. Oh, no, because Biden spent all that money on the third stimulus, so we can't do infrastructure. I thought, you don't have a brain in your fucking head. These arguments make no sense, and it's just a bunch of idiots voting for you that believe this crap. Honestly, it makes me sick. There's a lot of things that we can have a healthy debate on in this country. A lot of stuff we can have a debate on. People have, as I said last episode, they have different ideas about animal rights. My idea of animal rights is probably right in the middle, probably a moderate, right in the independent zone. There's people to the left of me like PETA. There's people to the right of me like hunters. So I'm kind of like right in that sort of do no harm, kind of leave animals alone. I don't necessarily have any pets, especially not any exotic pets. And I don't go hunting and I don't just say, oh, there's a squirrel. Let me go beat it up or something like that. You know, I mean, I'm not chasing squirrels in the park to eat them or something. So, but yet I eat meat. I'm not a vegan. I'm not a vegetarian. I'm not going to go to Chick-fil-A and hold a protest sign or, oh, there's a new kind of whopper. Fuck this shit. I'm just not going to do that. And so I'm kind of right there. But people can have a debate. That's a cultural issue. Political correctness. I typically go a little bit more towards the Bill Maher side. And yet- Not so far that I'm with Joe Rogan and Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson, where they just think cancel culture is the worst thing since Hitler. And they just go on and on about it, almost to the extent that they've really over-exaggerated the problem. They've created a problem. And it always bothers me that the people who complain about cancel culture, they make it sound like they're these big free speech advocates. And they make it sound like, oh, we just care so much about art. Give me a fucking break. You do not. Like, I love, as I said, older movies. like if I watch something kind of edgy like Taxi Driver or Clockwork Orange or something like that sure I love like Fight Club I cannot picture Jordan Peterson sitting there watching like Fight Club on a loop people might say oh well cancel culture you know you couldn't make this anymore you couldn't do that I'm not going to picture him as this guy who just loves art and he's just so wowed with the power of artists to write offensive and edgy books the guys are Christian conservative so it kills me the Christian conservatives, they bitch and whine about cancel culture. They are cancel culture. They want to ban books. They want to ban titties on television. They don't want commercials to be too sexy. They're the biggest squares on the fucking planet, prudes. And they're going to sit there and pretend that they're for this big, oh, we're part of the intellectual dark web. We're the intellectual underground. And all of our ideas, you don't have any fucking ideas. You're kicking around the same ideas that a bunch of jokers were about 100 years ago. As I said in a couple episodes ago, where does trickle down economic theory come from? A book called Taxation, the People's Business, which Andrew Mellon wrote. Back in the 1920s, he was Herbert Hoover's Secretary of Treasury during the Great Depression. Vance Mews came up with the right-to-work laws nearly 100 years ago. Where does the John Birch Society come from? The Koch brothers' father, Fred Koch, he was one of the co-founders of the John Birch Society. Okay. So all these ideas that Republicans have, they're not new. They've been around for 100 years, sometimes more than that. Some of the stuff's over 100 years ago. The Ku Klux Klan, that was a bunch of ex-Confederate soldiers that came back. They had lost the war. They couldn't handle that they lost the war, so they formed a terrorist group. No different than ISIS. After the Saddam Hussein government fell and all the Ba'ath Party officers in the military, Bush made the fucking idiotic decision to fire all of them. So what'd they do? they go out and say, well, we're going to create the insert- We're going to be ISIS and we're going to try to regain some of this political power. The Ku Klux Klan did that. What was one of the first things they did? We got to stop black people from voting. And that's the key to us holding on to power. A lot of it comes down to power. It's always been minority rule in the sense of how can we have a democracy, but we just don't want the wrong people to vote. So like if you're conservative and you're white, you live in rural Alabama, you're probably going to have a pretty easy path to voting. If you live in Birmingham, a pretty difficult path to voting. I've used the example before that Terry Sewell, the black congresswoman in Alabama, her congressional district is a joke. I mean, it's an abstract painting. They cut part of Birmingham and part of Montgomery, and several black counties in West Alabama that barely touch. Birmingham and Montgomery are not close to each other on a map, but they've cut them in such a way that it basically should be like two black districts, and instead it's just one because they've cut it in such a crazy ass way. Alabama should be three Democratic districts and four Republican ones. That would be a fair representation of their voters. Instead, it's one Democratic district and six conservative ones. So that's one of the ways that they do it, by allowing state legislatures to draw up the congressional maps, when are state legislatures elected? In midterms, when almost nobody fucking votes. The governor's races and the state legislatures, they have a lot of power. Let's just break down level by level the minority rule. So first at the federal level, you have the electoral college one of the only countries in the world where the winner of the most votes does not win. Only democracy I know of that goes by an electoral college system. So you have an electoral college system that denies the popular vote. All five times that the winner has been denied the popular vote, they were Democrats. So Republicans exclusively have benefited from the electoral college system. That was true when it denied Andrew Jackson the presidency the first time. That was true with the corrupt bargain that allowed Rutherford B. Hayes to be president over Samuel Tilden, and that ended Reconstruction in the South. The Democrats in the Southeast wanted Reconstruction to end so bad, they engineered something called the Corrupt Bargain of 1876. In exchange to end Reconstruction and pull federal troops out of there, they denied their own candidate, Samuel Tilden, the Democrat, the presidency. Then, of course, you have Bush and Trump, which is almost as bad. The Florida 2000 debacle that denied Al Gore a recount of Florida, and I believe he won. I believe he won. And we would have had one of the best presidents that we've ever had in Al Gore. Instead, we had one of the worst in George W. Bush. So you have the federal level. You have the Supreme Court, as I've already explained. Then you have the Senate. A lot of people say we don't need a Senate. And I'm really at that level and at that point of it because Joe Manchin is driving me fucking nuts. I was going to actually call this episode the Manchinian Candidate obviously based off the Manchurian candidate. Manchurian candidate meaning a communist infiltrator in the original movie or whatever. It's from China and they've infiltrated the U.S. government and that played along into the Red Scare. And if you watch the original movie, it's interesting because the senator clearly based off Joseph McCarthy, he's calling everybody else a communist, even as he's the actual puppet of the communists, which obviously foreshadows Trump. Trump is out there calling everybody else all these names This person's a socialist, that person's a socialist, this person's, you know, and he's the communist puppet. He's the guy that Russia and China want to be president. Why? So the United States can split apart and they can take over. From a military perspective, it is almost impossible to take over the United States. Russia and China wouldn't stand a fucking chance. Why do I say that? First, they have to get their troops here. They can't do that because we have the world's best Navy. Okay, they'll take them by plane, the world's best Air Force. Who's the second best Air Force in the world? The Navy has the second best Air Force, the American Navy. Unless the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy go to war with each other, there's no air superiority for Russia and China. They can't get their troops here by land or by sea. Then even if by some miracle they manage to take a beachhead like in Oregon or something like that, what's waiting for them? The National Guard and the Coast Guard. And then if by some miracle the United States Army, the Marines, then the Air Force, the Navy, the National Guard, and the Coast Guard, if they all fall asleep, just for some reason go into hibernation for two months and they all go into a fucking coma. What's waiting for them? 300 million guns. All these people have got guns. Now, do you think Bubba and Jeff and NASCAR Joe and all that, you think they're not just waiting for a fucking chance for something like that? Oh, China's in Mobile. Not for long, they ain't. One of my favorite jokes, Bush was trying to figure out how to win the Iraq War. This is back when the Iraq War was raging. And he said, well, what he did is he went to a NASCAR event in Talladega and he told them that ISIS was personally responsible for the death of Dale Earnhardt Jr. The war ended three weeks later. Like, you just imagine all those guys being like, we're waiting for this. You know, this is what they're stockpiling the gun for this is the call to action bruce willis and die hard like people are just dying for that die hard moment like we're in the right place at the right time people consider it the wrong place at the wrong time you're in the bank robbery you're in the building that has the terrorists. not these guys the people i know who have a shitload of guns the survivalist types they think the wrong place at the wrong time is the right place at the right time they're looking for that hero moment they want to be the hero of a diehard movie, right? It's the Paul Blart mentality or whatever. They're looking for action. They're dying to do something like that. I mean, I honestly think it would be a massacre. So how can a country like Russia and China, how can they take over the United States? Divide us from within. Have a guy like Trump, who's clearly a puppet, engineer a civil war, divide the country so that we're fighting each other all the time. That would be the only way they could do it. Great empires do not get killed. They commit suicide. They have to be basically divided from within to be conquered from without, if you think about it that way. The Roman Empire had to have all this civil war and strife and fold in on itself. Same thing with the Egyptian Empire. And you see that over and over again. There has to be war and division within. The military has to be split fighting each other. And then they break off gradually territory by territory. We're fighting each other. There's a civil war. China takes Hawaii. Russia takes back Alaska, and then it encroaches and encroaches, them because California and Virginia, they're too busy fighting each other. California and Virginia are going to war with each other. Meanwhile, Russia reabsorbs Alaska. China reabsorbs Hawaii. Next thing you know, China and Russia, they offer California help to defeat the southern states. It's a mess. And that's exactly the way they would do it come in the form of a helping hand. And you see that on social media all the time. People are shitting on democracy constantly. You see a question on Quora, and they'll say, Why is democracy so overrated? And then 20 Chinese bots come in there and say, Well, here's actually a funny thing America doesn't have a real democracy. And they'll go into all this shit. And it's really interesting that you can't tell a real difference between the Heritage Bot Foundation spam, so like all the bots that the Koch brothers employ at the Heritage Foundation, and the Russian and China spam. Sometimes say the almost exact same thing verbatim. The Russian bots and the Heritage Foundation bots, they both hate Nancy Pelosi, they both hate Hillary Clinton, they both hate Joe Biden, and they both really have a skepticism of direct democracy. They kind of prefer the idea that America is a republic. And of course, they're screaming, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. I am immediately suspicious of anybody who says that. That is such a talking point from the 1900s. And anybody who is basically saying to you, we really shouldn't have a direct democracy, fewer people should vote. I know they don't like it when you call them a fascist, but I don't see how you could not view it as fascist. And I've had debates with people about that before. They say things like, well, I don't want to be called a fascist, but fewer people should vote. And I'm like, but how are you not if you think the election should be controlled and that you really shouldn't have the people electing their leaders? How is that not fascism? I mean, I don't see a way around it. I want to be fair to their viewpoint, but their viewpoint is fewer people need to vote. I go the opposite way. More people need to vote. Compulsory voting. 100% of people need to vote. You know, stuff is gradient. There's a debate about political correctness. There's a debate about animal rights. I don't think we should have a debate about voting whether people should be able to vote, who should be able to vote. Republicans say that, and then they say the craziest thing, which is to basically say, you only believe that because you're a liberal. And I'm like, if you have to be a liberal to think people should vote, then to me, everybody should be a liberal. Like, that's an argument for liberalism. If you're sitting there saying, if everybody votes, we will lose, there's something wrong with what you believe. Like There's something not clicking that that's your argument is basically fewer people have to vote so that we can win elections what is it you believe that is so insane that people aren't going to vote for you if they have a free and fair election to me that is an argument totally against republicanism and it's interesting that they are the ones who want to limit election democrats typically win when more people vote and that alone is enough to make me a democrat that issue right there is enough to single-handedly put me in the Democratic camp. Do I agree with every single thing that they want to do? No, I don't. Do I think some Democrats are really kind of nutty or whatever? Sure, sure I do. But at the same time, if you don't vote for anything else, the fact that they want people to be able to vote and they want to make it easy and they want 100% of people to vote, that alone lets you know that they're on the right side of things. I don't see anybody on the right side of things who says, well, we need to have certain people voting. Okay, who do Republicans not want to vote? Convicted felons. When you're out of jail, you're out of jail. If the law says you're fit to be among us in society again, I don't see why you shouldn't be able to vote. Some people say you should be able to vote while you're in jail. Let's just stick to when you're out of jail, you should be able to vote. And of course, they did that in Florida. They gave convicted felons their voting rights back. They immediately took them back. DeSantis and his other asshole white knights came in there and said, Oh, no, uh, convicted felons, they can't vote. Which was all but admitting that it was racially motivated. Who's the majority of people that go to jail? One third of black men in the United States will go to jail at some point in their lives. Not saying they commit most of the crimes, but maybe disproportionately, they have to go to jail versus probation. And they know that. And so they set up a kind of perfect system of oppression. Black guy goes to the courts, he's going to get jail. White guy goes to courts, he might get probation. But when the guy goes to jail and gets convicted, he loses his voting rights. And then he can't vote for the rest of his life so it's almost a perfect system of even if you go to jail for a felony for only about six months then you've lost your voting rights people sometimes call prison the new jim crow the biggest thing in the southeast they wanted was to deny black people the right to vote so they had slaves they didn't want slaves to be able to vote but they wanted slaves to count towards their totals so that's that dreaded three-fifths of a compromise where the slave masters could basically vote for them because they didn't want to be underrepresented in the vote count, which the southern states would have been if you just went by people that weren't slaves, then the populations would have been underestimated. Ironically enough, if you go back and look at it far enough, the state that really wanted more direct democracy was Virginia in terms of they wanted the Senate to be based on population. They didn't want it to be that every state got two senators regardless. The states like Connecticut, it was a lot of the smaller New England states that came up with the system that we all hate today, which is that you have two senators, whether you're in Wyoming or California, well, it was states like Connecticut that came up with that. A senator named Roger Sherman and some others that came up with that original agreement. The reason I, a second ago, called the Constitution kind of a patchwork document, basically, the American Revolution was being fought separately by each individual state. So they were all fighting it in their own individual way. Washington had to sort of absorb these militias into a united front. Then when they got to the Constitution, each state had their own demands. All these different fiefdoms or kingdoms that all wanted to do their own kind of thing, and they had to make all these compromises just to get them to the table. I don't think Thomas Jefferson really sat there and intended like, oh, we'd still be doing this shit. 250 years later, we'd still be doing it exactly the same way. I think it was temporary compromises to bring states that were ornery, didn't want to cooperate, Southern states, they wanted to be counted more in the population with slaves. New England states, they didn't like that. And so there was all these different compromises that had to be reached around slavery, around population, around rural versus city, around big versus small. I think that that wasn't necessarily meant to last forever. It was temporary because each individual state, they had to be coaxed into forming a union. Even the name of this country, the United States of America, that's like a generic placeholder name. That's almost like a working title. Germany. France, Bolivia, Brazil, the United States of America. That's a working title. We'll come up with something better later, right? Even that is sort of a generic catch-all. But even in that title, it's not called Federal Territory of North America. It's the United States. So even right in the title, you get the states' rights argument. It's like, hey, just so you know... Like we came as a group, but we're all each our own individuals. Like it's 50 individual states. Like we're all still our own thing. You know, we just want to be clear. Like we're together, but we're not exclusive. You know, I see other people on the side. Like it's a polyamorous relationship between the states. I feel like that right there should indicate to you that things weren't totally finished. It was a great document and a grand document, but there were still other things that had to be done. When we get back to the idea of minorities have too much power. And by that, I mean minority voters. The rural areas are favored over the urban areas, 10 times out of 10, truthfully. On every single level of the government, rural voters are favored. People talk about the divide in this country, the political divide. I get really tired of hearing, oh, Europe is so much more liberal than America is. It's really not. And I know that's like a bombshell, right? Like people hear me say that and they think, you're nuts. Europe is definitely more liberal than the United States is. Not really. When you look at opinion polls... 75% of the United States supports gun control. I don't necessarily support it as much as the average American does. On that issue, I'm more conservative than the average American is. 75% of the country supports gun control. Same thing for abortion rights. Same thing for a lot of the economic programs. Most Americans don't like our health care system. They would like a change. Most Americans want Social Security benefits to go up. Overwhelmingly. Over 80% of the country supported the third wave of stimulus checks. That's a very liberal idea, just writing people a check and giving it to them and letting them spend it on whatever they want to for the stimulus. You have the same level of people just about supporting environmental reforms and social issues and economic reforms as they do in Europe. But it's just that we have a system where rural Americans... White Americans, older Americans, retired Americans, conservative Americans, they have overwhelmingly more power than they do anywhere else. The Electoral College over the popular vote. The two senators from each state system, which other countries in Europe do not have. The fact that you need two-thirds of states to pass new amendments. This is another fucking roadblock from hell. A lot of people don't even think about this. But even if you get a big amendment passed through the House and the Senate and the President and the Supreme Court can't find some technicality to overturn it on, you still have to get two-thirds of states to ratify it. Two-thirds of states is a big goddamn deal in this day and age, with the states looking like they do right now. Every single election, there is no blowout anymore. Reagan 84, Nixon 72, there's no more elections like that, where it's just a gigantic blowout. The country's pretty divided. The whole thing comes down to about 10 states. Hard to get two-thirds of states to agree on anything, but even when Democrats are able to do it. If you watch this miniseries, Mrs. America, on FX, Kate Blanchett is one of the great American villains, Phyllis Shafley, this woman who single-handedly just about killed the Women's Rights Amendment. And if you look at the process of it, it has to go through the House, they pass it, it goes through the Senate, they pass it, the president signs it, but then it's got to snake its way through the states, and that takes forever, and it drags on, and states start killing it left and right, because you've got to get it through the state legislatures, which is really difficult to do obviously, as anybody could tell you. So you're having to talk states like fucking Montana and Virginia and Colorado and some of these disparate states. Most of them were a lot more conservative than they are today into voting for this thing. And then when you finally get all the states that you needed and they finally did do it fairly recently, they ran out of time. Basically, they had to extend the deadline because there was a certain time when Nancy Pelosi in the house, she did that. Mitch McConnell in the Senate did not do that. So now you'd have to get the Senate to extend the deadline now that all the states have finally ratified it. I mean, it is a fucking nightmare. So you got to take it back to the Senate and say, okay, D.C. and Puerto Rico, they have voted on statehood. They want to become states because that was a big thing. Like, oh, we don't have a plurality of people that want to become states. Well, they do. Now they've done it and they've voted on it. And Puerto Rico and D.C. both want to be states. The House has voted on it and they've cleared it. Well, in the Senate, We would only need 50 votes to do it, but I don't know if Joe Manchin wants to do it. Even if we can talk him into it, we got to find a way to get to 60 because of the filibuster. Why'd he get to 60? Well, because Joe Manchin, he won't kill the filibuster. Well, this is the whole reason we want two new states. We want D.C. and Puerto Rico so we don't have to fucking go to him on everything. We don't got to worry about the goddamn filibuster anymore. So we can get the two new states. We can get the votes to kill the filibuster. Then it don't have to be 60 anymore. When you look at a system set up... To say, okay, not only do you have to get a plurality in the House, but you got to get not just 50 votes in the Senate, and then the vice president breaks a tie, but you have to get a filibuster-proof majority, which is, again, goddamn impossible because Idaho sends two senators and California sends two senators. So not only is it not equal to begin with, but then Democrats don't even have to go to 50. They have to go over 50. They got to get past the damn filibuster, which is almost impossible. But even if they can do that, then it gets kicked down to the state level where two-thirds of state legislatures, the dumbest fucking people on the planet, have to vote to approve this amendment. State legislatures are morons. My mother was going to be one. As I said before she ran for office To be a state representative. People don't know this, but their state representatives and their state senators, they have a lot of power. Those are part-time jobs. In Alabama, the state house works about 30 days out of the year. It is a part-time job. Almost nobody who does that, does that and only that. They work 30 days out of the year. That's their session. Most of these guys have no qualifications whatsoever. They're just big in a small town. They're from a small town. They're from an area like Marshall County. They own a tractor dealership or a hunting lodge. Kerry Rich, the guy who does it, he worked part-time at a radio station. That was his big qualification to go down to Montgomery and be one of the most powerful men in the state passing laws on abortion clinics. This man knows nothing. And he's down there passing bills in Montgomery that are going to affect the whole state. Well, I think that uh, a woman's health is more important than having an abortion right. So I'm going to pass it to where all these abortion clinics can't operate. What forms his thinking on abortion? The fact that he has one adult daughter? whose mother had to sue him for child support when she was a kid. He didn't want to pay child support for this girl. He's been married three times. He has one adult daughter who never talks to him. They're estranged. He has no family, but he's going to protect the family he doesn't have from a woman's right to choose. Even though he's a single adult bachelor who's 60 and people think he's a closeted gay guy who doesn't even live in Alabama. He lives in Utah where they say he goes to ski lodges and picks up men. A guy is an Alabama state legislature who does not live in the state, he owns a house in Alabama that the state legislature's salary paid for, but he doesn't live there full time. He's anywhere but. He's in Arizona. He's in Utah. He's in the West doing his thing. And the 30 days of the year that he has to go to Montgomery and vote on a bunch of bills, he does not understand. And the lobbyists tell him, vote for this, vote for that, turn that down, say no to this. They tell him what to do and he does it. But that's where state legislatures come from. The people who live in the state capitol are not the legislatures; They're the lobbyists for the legislatures. Like in Alabama, it might be Alpha Insurance or the Timber Association or something like that. And their lobbyists write these bills. And a bunch of goobers who do this shit 30 days out of the year, they go down there and they vote yes or they vote no or however they're told to vote. Then they go back and do whatever the hell they sell cars the other 11 months out of the year. And they don't really keep up with this stuff. And then you have a governor like Kay Ivey, who's a daytime drunk, I mean, she's having to pass like CDC regulations because the federal government didn't set them for months and months. And she's having to decide stuff like mask mandates. This 70-year-old daytime drunk who knows me really nothing about science, who only became governor because Robert Bentley had to resign over a sex scandal. And she's who you're going to turn to to save your life in a pandemic. But that's where we're at. The governors and state legislatures, they're going to decide whether an amendment passes or doesn't pass. And then that's if it can get past the House and if it can get past the Senate and if a president can sign it and if a Supreme Court that a majority of American people did not vote for the president that appointed those people doesn't find some reason to overturn it. It's maddening at every level of the system. It's set up not to favor you. And of course, the Senate originally wasn't directly elected by the people. People did not directly elect their senators. They were appointed by the states. And so people didn't have direct representation by their senators. Some people say we should go back to that system. I say, what's the difference? Joe Manchin doesn't represent the people of West Virginia. He represents the coal companies of West Virginia. This comes down to the American voter versus the American worker. The big argument that people say, oh, we can't change this, we can't do that, we can't do this and that, it'll hurt jobs. Oh, we can't have any regulations on coal companies at all because it'll hurt jobs. Never mind that most people don't work in a damn coal mine and it actually kills more jobs than it creates. Can't regulate it at all. Fossil fuels kill more jobs than they create. They kill jobs in fishing, ranching, farming, forestry, park rangers, even real estate. Because if there's a massive drought in that area, fracking spills all over the area. The water's contaminated. You might have seen movies where they turn on the water faucet and then the flames come out of the pipe. There's gas that comes out of the pipe. They light the flame. There's fucking bathroom is the eternal flame of the Olympics, right? People are not going to buy that house polluted, terrible environments, those are bad for real estate agents. More jobs that depend on a good environment than depend on fossil fuels. Almost every estimate says that more people now work in wind and solar than coal companies. Actually, they kill more jobs. But the reason we can't do anything about the environment, it'll hurt jobs. How does it hurt jobs? Oh, we don't know. It doesn't hurt jobs. It hurts the big checks that the politicians who work 30 days out of the year, and then the rest of the time, they got to find a way to supplement their income. If you're a car dealer 11 months out of the year and a state representative one month out of the year, who are you going to be for? The people of Alabama in that one month or the 11 months out of the year when you just got a massive contract to sell 10 new cars to a coal company that needs them or something like that. Like it's all these conflicts of interest. They happen all the time. Nobody really investigates them. The American worker, people say, oh, he or she, they've got to be protected. And that's why we can't force Amazon and Walmart, we can't force them to pay a higher wage because that'll hurt jobs. We can't get rid of coal because that'll hurt jobs. We can't get rid of big tobacco because that'll hurt jobs. We can't even do anything about health care because that'll hurt jobs. In a place like Marshall County, Alabama, one of the biggest employers I talked about is chicken plants, but probably the biggest employer that actually pays decent wages is the hospital. And so when people talk about, well, how come a lot of people don't want to see American health care change that much? In a lot of rural areas, hospitals are a huge business. It really cannot be be offshored and it cannot be urbanized to the extent of a lot of jobs. When they created the internet, the town paper might get bought out and then people start reading the New York Times or whatever. Like Media became more and more national. And so a lot of stuff that would have been local media or local this and that, it became more and more national. Things became more globalized. Retail has been decimated by big tech has really killed it. Okay, people go online, they order stuff from Amazon, it comes to their house a day later, they don't necessarily go to the small business, something that could not necessarily be automated or offshored before, now can be. That's not true for hospitals. I mean, you can do like teledoc or you can do one of those appointments, but if you really need a procedure or you really need to see a doctor, you wanna see one that's close to your house. And so because the hospital for a lot of these rural counties is about the only thing that's not been hit by big tech and not been killed by it, They don't necessarily want to see that change. A lot of people depend on that for their livelihoods or their jobs. The hospital board, the administrators of that hospital, that's a lot of money. All the people that work there, there's thousands of jobs. And so that's another thing people say, well, we can't change the healthcare system because you know all those jobs will be harder, blah, blah, blah. So you have a system where the American worker is protected. But then when you try to change that system and you try to say things like, okay, well, what if we just automate a lot of these crappy jobs and then we give people a check from the government to stay home and then they get a $600 unemployment check per week, hell no, we don't want that. They want people desperate and showing up to these crappy jobs. And so they're trying to protect these jobs, most of which don't even really exist anymore. Every time you see a politician say, we must protect the coal miners. I'm like, who really goes out there and is like son I want you to be a coal miner like who would encourage their kids to go into that line of work they said well there's people who've done it how long they've been doing two years because the guys who have been doing it forever they're really close to medicare and social security and retirement age of course the best plan is to lower that for them over 50 and you've been doing coal for such a long period of time go ahead and get in the social security and the medicare system but I find it a canard that we can't change systems just because it will hurt their jobs somehow some way I don't believe that necessarily I think anybody who says, well, we have to keep people from voting so we can save jobs. And that's basically the Republican argument, if you really think about it. We have to control who votes because the Democrats will do things that are bad for the economy. Never mind that that's not really true. Under Democrats, the economy is usually better than it is under Republicans. Republican economies are okay for the first year or two. They give all these stupid tax cuts that only rich people need. Then they crash the economy, and rich people have this huge tax surplus because they hadn't been paying the appropriate amount of taxes for the last couple of years. So they then have excess money to buy houses, to buy properties, to put smaller businesses out of business so they can monopolize industries and things like that. So they're sitting on a surplus of cash at an economically vulnerable time, which allows them to monopolize more wealth. That's why recessions are usually good for rich people and they seem to know when they're about to come and that's why they have a shitload of cash that they're sitting on. That's why they don't necessarily seem to care that every single time a Republican president is in office they have a recession. Every time it's been that way but they don't care. Recessions can be very good for rich people. People that are already wealthy and have a lot of liquid capital They're terrible for most people, but they're not that bad for rich people. That's why they don't care about them that much. Chaos can be better for them than a slow, steady, gradual building of capital status quo under somebody like Joe Biden. Slow, steady ship. That may not be as good for them. I don't know. I'm discouraged to see all these attacks on voting rights in the Southeast. And of course, there's some people listening to this that may not even be aware this is happening. But of course, predictably, conservative state legislatures in Arizona, in Georgia, places like that, that went for Biden and have gotten Democratic senators that they don't feel should have, they're now going to have very strict voting laws put in place to try to stop more people from voting and try to shift it. A lot of these elections come down to a few thousand votes. They're pretty close. And if you really look at the gains, that the Democrats have made. The only reason we're tied in the Senate is obviously those two very close elections in Georgia, but the real gains we've made haven't necessarily been in the Southeast over the last 10 years or whatever. It's the Southwest. If you look at the Southwest, that's an exciting area for Democrats because we flipped Colorado. I mean, Colorado is almost a full blue state now, and that wasn't true for the longest time. It was purple or or even soft red. So Colorado has been pretty much flipped. Nevada has been pretty much flipped. New Mexico has been pretty much flipped. All these were purple or red states. And Arizona now has two Democratic senators. People listening to this might say like, well, Senema, he's hardly a Democrat. I mean, she's definitely annoying as hell. She's up there with Manchin where it's just almost like, what the hell is your problem, you know? Mark Kelly, I mean, he's in the same state Senema is. He represents the same voters that she does, and he just doesn't seem to be bonkers. I mean, he doesn't seem to be crazy. What kills me about Senema? she's a classic example of how it's wrong to put a lot of emphasis on identity politics. Because Mark Kelly is a heterosexual white male in Arizona, and he's more liberal than Senema on everything. And he can be. He doesn't have to necessarily overdo it. Senema, because she's a woman in a state that doesn't have a lot of female senators, and because she's bisexual openly in a state that has never had an LGBTQ plus, A plus, minus, I don't know, the acronym that sounds like a streaming service. You know what I'm talking about. There's A and an I and a plus in there. They've never had a senator like that. She has to sort of be like more red than the red gal, pretty much more conservative than John McCain on some stuff. And a lot of Arizona senators, even though they're Republicans like Jeff Flake and John McCain, they weren't crazy. And so it's almost like she's kind of having to top them, overcompensate to an extent. And so that's a classic example of like, you never can judge a book by its cover. Some of the most liberal people in the Democratic Party are people like John Edwards. You look at them and maybe like John Edwards, you might dismiss him because he's a white heterosexual guy from the South. And yet at the same time, I think he might can get more stuff through than somebody who would be constantly like Barack Obama's like, I don't want to look like I'm too liberal. Pete Buttigieg is like, I don't want to look like I'm too liberal, constantly kind of backing away from it, not necessarily wanting the label of it. LBJ is the most liberal president that we've had in the last 60 years. But you look at him and you see his identity and you look at that, and you wouldn't think that. You wouldn't think that LBJ would be more liberal than Barack Obama. That just wouldn't be the first thing that would come into your head. And yet he was on nearly everything and got a lot of big shit done. I mean, huge structural changes institutional changes. Probably the last time we've had a Democratic president do that. And so I'm very concerned that Republicans are trying every way in the world to stop minorities from voting. I'm even more concerned the white working class seems to think their interests are being represented by Republicans, which is almost an abusive relationship. They don't like the white working class. Every single program that has ever benefited the white working class has come from the Democrats. Social Security, Medicare, the GI Bill, the social safety net, WIC, Medicaid, food stamps, Pell Grants, the Affordable Care Act, every single program you can think of that has ever benefited the white working class has come from the Democratic Party. And so when I hear that people say things like, well, how come the Democrats think we're going to vote for them when they don't represent us? I'm like, they do. And you don't even know it. That's the sad part. Whenever there's a gigantic ass natural disaster, and a lot of them happen in red states, Because there's tornadoes, there's fracking incidents, there's oil spills. Who's always the first ones there with a check? The Democrats. Then you have the senior citizens. Which party wants to basically privatize Social Security? Wants to raise the Medicare age? Republicans. Democrats don't want that stuff. They want to lower the Medicare age. They want to refund Social Security. They want to make it more solvent. They want to add to it. They want the payments to get bigger and keep up with inflation for once. Who's for pensions and retirement systems like that? Democrats. So all these older white voters and stuff that just think they got to vote Republican Party, I'm like, if you vote your economic interest, you're going to vote for the Democrats. And that's just all there is to it. Most of the Republican voting constituencies, they have no real reason to vote for the Republicans. The military is another huge one. The military usually votes Republican. Why? Bush came up with the Iraq War. Trump was dying to go to war with Iran. Does that benefit the American military? No. Gets a bunch of American soldiers killed for no reason. Meanwhile, the biggest threats to American democracy, Russia and China, Trump's friends with them, while Joe Biden realizes how dangerous they are. So all these big constituencies that typically vote Republican, there's no reason to do it. So I believe the American voter and the American worker should team up, become the same person, and all vote Democratic. I remember the first time I ever voted, it was almost like a Wizard of Oz moment. I was going behind the curtain. I was meeting the great wizard, looking at the man behind the curtain. I went to a voting place in Alabama, I believe it was at the rec center. And I came in. It didn't take long to vote. Just kind of came in there and told them who you were. They marched your name off on a list, gave you a ballot, and you went to a table. And this is a room with no ambiance. This is where they play like high school basketball games and stuff like that. They have dodgeball or whatever. And yet it felt like the most important place in the world. I'm sitting in a gym table next to a bunch of bleachers, filling out a card with people that probably would make no real difference who you voted for. But at the same time, I felt like the master of the universe. I felt like I was important and I was a part of something. I think most Americans like that feeling. They like the feeling of going to vote, doing their civic duty. This should be enjoyable. Shouldn't be a five hour long wait to vote. They should be able to go and do it and cast the vote and enjoy it and be done with it. And so it kills me that people want to take that experience away. We've already lost the movie theaters, just about. We've already lost the kids' play places and a lot of restaurants and the bars. They said the opera houses and all that other stuff may go out of business. Broadway may not come back like it was. Cruise lines may be gone for good. Don't take away voting, for God's sakes. Give us one last bastion of hope that we live in a civilized world. One last glimmer of hope for weary travelers. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening. Join us soon for episode 88, and I hope you have a wonderful... Fourth of July and summertime. See you soon.